This evening we consider the fourth term of communion and uh, previous times together we have looked at the National Covenant, the Solemn League and Covenant, and this evening we will be considering the Arkansas Renovation. Let me read again for you the fourth term of communion. It says, That public social covenanting is an ordinance of God obligatory on churches and nations under the New Testament, that the National Covenant and the Solemn League are an exemplification of this divine institution, and that these deeds are of continued obligation upon the moral person, and in consistency with this, that the renovation of these covenants at Arkansas 1712 was agreeable to the word of God. Now, I would have you note, these are preliminary remarks, first of all. Uh, So if you're keeping uh, notes or taking notes, uh, I have a few preliminary remarks. And uh, particularly as it uh, pertains to that statement we just read, this fourth term of communion, I'd like to highlight uh, for you the last part of that statement, which says, and that these deeds that is the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant, are of continued obligation upon the moral person and in consistency with this, that the renovation of these covenants at Arkansas 1712 was agreeable to the Word of God. Now note particularly that since the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant are of continued obligation upon the moral person of the national, ecclesiastical, and personal posterity of the nations, churches, and individuals of Scotland, England, and Ireland who covenanted with God, that it is also of continued obligation to renew such covenants by which we are previously bound through our forefathers and that such a faithful covenant renewal was performed in Arkansas 1712. That's the flow of that particular fourth communion. Since the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant are faithful covenants, it's of continued obligation to renew those covenants. And such a faithful renewal was uh, performed at Arkansas in 1712. The important point in this fourth term of communion uh, to keep in mind is that covenant renewal is a continued obligation. Not simply making covenants for the first time, but covenant renewal is a continued obligation upon posterity. And that pursuant To that truth is that the Arkansas renovation provides us with a faithful example of covenant renewal to follow. And so that's how the Arkansas gets put into the terms of communion there, is that since covenant renewal is a binding obligation upon posterity, how are you going to know how to renew a covenant? You need some kind of example to follow uh, and and a faithful example of covenant renewal is given in the Arkansas renovation. It is agreeable to the word of God. Thus, if we were to put this fourth term of communion in this last section that I've just spoken to, uh, if we were to put it into the form of two questions, we might ask this. Do you believe, first of all, that it is of continued obligation to renew faithful covenants that our forefathers have made and by which they have bound their posterity? Do you believe that? And second of all, do you believe that the Arkansas renovation is such an example of a faithful covenant renewal? Thus, we might say that anyone who would have a difficulty 
with the Arkansas renovation really doesn't have a problem with the Arkansas renovation, but ultimately has a problem with the National Covenant, the Solemn League and Covenant, and I would submit ultimately a problem with biblical covenanting as it's found within the pages of Scripture. <clears throat> because that's what it is based upon, as we will see tonight. And so the Arkansas renovation of 1712 uh, was, and still under preliminary remarks, uh, the Arkansas renovation of 1712 was a renewal of the National Covenant of 1638 and the Solemn League and Covenant of 1643 in an area in Scotland uh, between what is known as Douglas and Crawford John in a small area called Arkansas. Sometimes, in fact, you will find this covenant, the, or this renewal, <clears throat> uh, renovation, this Arkansas renovation, <clears throat> sometimes you'll see it referred to as the renovation at Douglas uh, or the renewal at Crawford John. That's the same covenant, the Arkansas uh, re uh, renovation. It's, it's referring to the same covenant renewal. The chief architects of the Arkansas renovation were Reverend John McMillan of Balmagee, together with Mr. McNeil, who was a uh, licentiate. Actually, uh, uh, it's interesting, we'll probably do a little bit more uh, looking at these two individuals next time, but uh, uh, McMillan was actually the younger man. Um, uh, McNeil was actually quite his uh, senior, as far as years goes, he uh, uh, he was a licentiate and never uh, he was a licentiate for 43 years and uh, never uh, uh, was ordained as a minister. And uh, but uh, Macmillan uh, was the younger man actually uh, between the two. <clears throat> okay, moving on to the second main point. And that is the necessity of renewing covenants. The necessity of renewing covenants. And we can look at this both negatively and positively. Negatively, we don't renew covenants because they are essential and absolutely necessary to our salvation. Uh, in other words, this is not a term of salvation whether or not somebody renews these covenants. And we need to make these two points clear uh, under this uh, uh, negative uh, subheading. Uh, they are not, and we are not making this essential or absolutely necessary to salvation, nor were any of our forefathers. Salvation is uh, based entirely upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ which is imputed to us uh, through faith in Jesus Christ. And uh, so it is only and always the active and passive obedience of Christ that is the ground for our salvation. And uh, that is uh, mediated through uh, faith in Christ. <clears throat> but secondly, uh, under this... Uh, uh, negative subheading um, the uh, covenants are not uh, renewed secondly because they make us more acceptable to God There's, we're not saying that there is uh, merit that we are performing some type of meritorious deed that makes us more acceptable to God because again we are only acceptable in Christ. We can't become more acceptable than we already are when we are justified uh, by faith. And so we need to, again, kind of clear the debris that this is a works righteousness type of uh, situation. No, we're not claiming that to be the case at all. However, we are claiming, as we'll see, that this is uh, to be obedient to God's word, which God has given to us. It is to, uh, therefore, not be viewed as something that is inconsequential, uh, that is unimportant, 
insignificant, secondary, or anything like that. This is a part of our Christian faith, which has been given to us. It is, uh, in fact, viewed as being a part of the third commandment, where we find uh, that we are not to take the name of the Lord our God in vain, which talks about uh, how we are to take oaths and vows and covenants. And so this is a part of our, our responsibility under the third commandment to renew covenants before God. But positively, the necessity of renewing the covenants, we would uh, cite these five, uh, five reasons for renewing the covenants. Number one, because it is, com- it is a commanded duty for covenant breakers to return from their backsliding. It is a commanded duty in the scriptures that all covenant breakers are to repent of their covenant breaking and they are to return from their backsliding. For example, in Jeremiah 3.14, God speaking through the prophet Jeremiah says, Turn, O backsliding children, saith the Lord, for I am married unto you, and I will take you one of a city and two of a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And so God compares the covenant that they have entered into together as a bond of marriage. And because they have turned from the Lord God, they have departed, they have backslidden from that covenant which God has established with them, God calls them to repent, to return. And involved in that would be renewing that covenant that they previously had made with God or that their forefathers had made with God. Uh, In the New Testament, one of the sins that is particularly deemed to be a a very heinous sin in the eyes of God is uh, covenant breaking. In Romans chapter 1, beginning with uh, verse 28, And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection, implacable, uh, unmerciful, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, not only do the same, but have pleasure in them that do them. And so, um, covenant breaking there is listed as uh, one of those sins that uh, God uh, considers to be particularly a heinous sin. If we furthermore consider the same uh, uh, same thing is said in 2 Timothy 3 concerning Uh, the types of sins that will be prevalent in the last days. One of those sins uh, is found in verse 3 as truce breakers. Truce breakers. And again, just... uh, Let me see if there's one other passage that I had in mind here. Uh, 
Psalm 55:20 it says I'll begin with verse 19 God shall hear and afflict them even he that abideth of old Selah because they have no changes therefore they fear not God verse 20 he hath put forth his hands against such as be at peace with him. He hath broken his covenant. So covenant breaking uh, is something that must be repented of. And it is, a, it is a commanded duty to do so. Secondly, uh, renewing covenants is necessary uh, secondly, because of the awful judgments which God threatens upon those who violate his covenants. Those judgments which God promises to bring upon those who do violate his covenants. In Leviticus chapter 26 as an example, <clears throat> we read in verse 14, but if ye will not hearken unto me and will not do all these commandments and if ye shall despise my statutes or if your soul abhor my judgments so that ye will not do all my commandments but that ye break my covenant. Notice that section there, but that ye break my covenant. Now, that is a, simply a summary when he says, if you will not obey the commandments, the statutes, the judgments, and the, and, and the commandments of God, uh, that is the same as to break God's covenant, the covenant which that God has made with them and which they have entered into with God. And uh, uh, so we see there that... Uh, all that follows in Leviticus chapter 26, and I won't read the remainder of the chapter, but as you look at Leviticus 26, you find all of the curses that God promises to pour out upon the nation that breaks covenant with him. And uh, many, many of those, and we certainly see uh, that realized uh, in these covenant-breaking nations of today these judgments which God has brought to pass. Thirdly, the necessity of renewing the covenants. Thirdly, because of <clears throat> scriptural example as well as a historical example. Because of scriptural example. And again, we're going to look at a few passages here. In Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, this is the covenant. It's referring to the covenant which God made with his people at Mount Sinai or Horeb and which they themselves uh, agreed to enter into covenant with God concerning. It says in verse 2, the Lord our God made a covenant with us in Horeb. The Lord made not this covenant with our fathers, but with us, even us, who are all of us here alive this day. Now, it's interesting because uh, the, uh, uh, this reference is uh, at least 40 years, around 40 years after that original covenant was made with God's people uh, at Mount Sinai that Moses is now now speaking 40 years later to renew the covenant before they enter into the land. And he says, you know, God, you did not enter into covenant with God and God did not make this covenant with, with uh, your fathers. He made it with you. Now, that whole generation that was living at that time, except for Joshua and Caleb, had passed away, had died in the wilderness. So this is an entirely new generation. And yet he's saying, God made that covenant with you. Not with just your forefathers. And so here uh, it emphasizes the need, the necessity to renew covenant. 
to, to see the importance that, that covenant obligations are not forgotten, but that they are renewed. Uh, next, turn with me to Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29, verses 10 through 15. And this is yet Moses speaking and addressing the people concerning their covenant renewal before they enter into the land, the promised land. Verse 10 says, Ye stand this day, all of you, before the Lord your God, your captains of your tribes, your elders and your officers, with all the men of Israel, your little ones, your wives, and thy stranger that is in thy camp, from the hewer of thy wood unto the drawer of thy water, that thou shouldest enter into covenant with the Lord thy God and into his oath, which the Lord thy God maketh with thee this day, that he may establish thee today for a people unto himself, and that he may be unto thee a God as he hath said unto thee, and as he hath sworn unto thy fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Neither with you only do I make this covenant and this oath, but with him that standeth here with us this day before the Lord our God, and also with him that is not here with us this day. And so again, the importance of renewing uh, that covenant after a period in which uh, uh, Israel had been very rebellious and God had poured forth his judgment upon them in the wilderness. The necessity of renewing that covenant after a time of God's judgment and of much backsliding from that covenant with all the idolatry, you remember, that was uh, uh, perpetrated uh, in the wilderness wanderings, all the complaining, all of the sinning that they did against uh, God's appointed leaders, uh, all of that. Now they renew their covenant. Another covenant renewal in Joshua 24:25, where we find this is at the close of Joshua's life. But he's simply renewing the covenant which God made with them originally at Sinai. But it says, just by way of summary, verse 25, So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and set them a statute and an ordinance in Shechem. In Second Chronicles 34, verse 29, Josiah uh, finds the, the book of the covenant, finds the law of God. It has been lost, apparently, and, and now it is recovered, and he reads it. He, he rends his garment. He's in great grief and mourning over how they have violated God's covenant and he says, or he, this is the, the action that he takes in uh, verse 29 of chapter 34, Second Chronicles 34:29. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up into the house of the Lord and all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites and all the people, great and small, and he read in their ears all the words of the book of the covenant that was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. And he caused all that were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin to stand to it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem <clears throat> did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations out of all the countries that pertain to the children of Israel and made all that were present in Israel to serve, even to serve the Lord their God. And all his days they departed not from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. <clears throat> And so there's a faithful example of covenant renewal instituted by King Josiah. 
<clears throat> then in Nehemiah, finally, just uh, there are others, but uh, these are just summaries, uh, a summary of those passages. In Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 38. <clears throat> this is uh, comes at the conclusion of a of a prayer uh, by the Levites, where they basically uh, show the covenant faithfulness of God uh, to them, and they go through historically how God has been faithful to them. And at the conclusion, it says in verse thirty-eight, and because of all this. They, they say, we make a sure covenant and write it, and our princes, Levites, and priests seal unto it. And then chapter 10, <clears throat> verse 29 says, they, this is what they did in this covenant, they clave to their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and into an oath to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord our God and his judgments and his statutes. And so we find, uh, again, biblical warrant uh, for the renewal of of covenants, and because we find covenant breaking in the New Testament to certainly be a violation of God's word, we see that the uh, that the duty therefore is to keep covenant and to renew covenant. Now, what about historical example? Well, I'm not going to go into detail except just to mention these historical examples of covenant renewal. And if you want to just jot these down, and if you have um, some reference material to refer to, uh, you can look these up. But uh, in Edinburgh in 1557, in Perth in 1559, in uh, Leith or Leith in 1560, in Ayr, spelled like air, but I believe it's pronounced Ayr. Uh, in 1562, in the uh, renewal of the whole nation of Scotland, covenant renewal in 1648 and 1649, the entire nation um, again uh, covenanted. This was after the Solemn League and Covenant was uh, was instituted, and then it was renewed in 1648 and 1649 in Lanark. In 1666 and in 1689, in Arkansas in 1712, and uh, there is one uh, that we would cite even in the United States, Covenant Renewal in Octoera, that's spelled O-C-T-O-A-R-A, Octoera, uh, Pennsylvania, in 1743. Now, the fourth, uh, still under the necessity of renewing the covenants, and the fourth reason to renew the covenants is because it will be the means by which God will pour forth his blessing upon nation and church in, in a covenanted reformation. Do we want to enjoy blessing in this nation? Do we want to see the church prosper within this nation? Well, the means by which that occurs is through renewal of covenants that we are bound by. Renewing these covenants which our forefathers uh, and which this nation is still bound by being a descendant of, of England. And then finally, we ought to renew covenants a necessity because, fifthly, it will be the means of uniting the visible church of Jesus Christ universal and ushering in millennial blessing. How will, how will Christ's church throughout the world visibly become one? Institutionally, recognizing one another's courts 
recognizing together that we have the same doctrine, worship, government. It will be by a covenanted reformation. It will be through this means and uh, through renewing faithful covenants like the um, Solemn League and Covenant, the National Covenant. And so this can this will really be the the way in which a worldwide blessing upon uh, all nations and upon the church will come about through a covenanted reformation. Okay, the third main point, which is our last main point for this evening, is basically a a historical overview. And uh, I've just entitled this Key Events Leading Up to the Arkansas Renovation. Key events, number three, leading up to the Arkansas renovation of 1712. And uh, next time we meet, we'll look at uh, key events surrounding the Arkansas renovation. But we're just uh, going to look at the key events leading up to it tonight. First of all, the second reformation uh, from... And we would uh, say that the Second Reformation includes these years from 1638 to 1649. The Second Reformation began in earnest in Scotland in the year 1638 with the National Covenant of Scotland being drafted and subscribed by the Parliament of Scotland, the Church of Scotland, and individuals of all walks of life within Scotland. Also within that second Reformation period in 1643, the first document emitted by the Westminster Assembly was the Solemn League and Covenant, which according to the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland was called the Foundation for Reformation uh, within the nations of Scotland, England, and Ireland. Actually, I should qualify that that was Uh, called the Foundation for Reformation by the commissioners, the Scottish commissioners, to the Westminster Assembly. And this is what they say. I'm quoting from the letter from the commissioners at London to the General Assembly. June the 4th, 1644, quoting from the Acts of General Assemblies of the Church of Scotland from the year 1638 to 1649, on page 228. This is the quote. As we cannot but admire the good hand of God in the great things done already, particularly that the covenant, meaning the solemn league and covenant, that the covenant, and then in parentheses they've added, the foundation of the whole work is taken. The covenant is the foundation of the whole work of Reformation, that it's been taken And then they go on to say, Prelacy and the whole train thereof extirpated. The service book in many places forsaken. Plain and powerful preaching set up. Many colleges in Cambridge provided with such ministers as are most zealous of the best reformation. Altars removed. The communion in some places given at the table with sitting. The great organs at Paul's and of Peter's in Westminster taken down. Images and many other monuments of idolatry defaced and abolished. The chapel royal at Whitehall uh, purged and reformed, and all by authority in a quiet manner at noonday without tumult. And so, the Second Reformation was, was catapulted into that glorious Reformation by means of covenants the National Covenant and the Solemn League and Covenant. The second point under, under key events is that defection from the terms of these covenants, primarily in the form of toleration, tolerating covenant breaking, tolerating wickedness, tolerating immorality, toler- tolerating false religion. That was how defection primarily occurred from these covenants in toleration. Defection from the terms of these covenants had established itself 
in these nations over the next few years to such an extent that by 1649 it was necessary to renew the Solemn League and Covenant, which Scotland itself undertook to do. It accomplished that. It did renew in 1648 and 1649. The General Assembly in 1648 and the Parliament in 1649 of Scotland. This was the first covenant renewal subsequent to the Westminster Assembly. Third main point under key events. Charles II, the son of Charles I, Remember, Charles I was executed by a commission of Parliament under the influence of Cromwell. Uh, so Charles II sought to establish his rule over England, Scotland, and Ireland by falsely taking the Solemn League and Covenant twice in order to, to reach a place of power where he could reign. Scotland would not acknowledge him as their king until he had taken the Solemn League and Covenant. And so he perjured himself he lied by taking it falsely so that he could simply assume power. Upon taking the covenant, uh, Charles II then rallied the Scots together to, in order to overthrow Cromwell in England. The final outcome of this battle being that, of uh, this war, being that uh, Cromwell prevailed and Charles II fled to France to await another opportunity to assert his lying tyranny. The fourth uh, main point under key events leading up to the renovation at Arkansas. Under the protectorate, uh, Cromwell instituted legalized toleration when he assumed the power uh, in 1650. Toleration of all the things that the Solemn League and Covenant forbade, toleration of those very things was, was instituted and legalized in 16, beginning in 1650 by Cromwell. During the first few years of Cromwell's rule, a division occurred within the Church of Scotland and again, this division focused upon issues related to toleration. You see, that seems to be the real big issue wherever there's defection, tolerating wickedness, evil, false doctrine, error, false practices and worship or government. Toleration is where defection begins. And so it was historically here. Um, this division in the Church of Scotland was over the issue of toleration, the resolutioners saying that they ought to tolerate covenant breakers, those who violated the Solemn League and Covenant, they ought to tolerate them and let them serve in places of authority and power within the nation or within the church. Whereas the protesters said no, they should not be tolerated, they should rather uh, suffer uh, civil censures for their for their covenant breaking. They should not be placed into places of authority and power, whether in the state or in the church. And as a result of this division within the Church of Scotland, two different general assemblies met alongside one another, the protester general assembly and the resolutioner general assembly for the first few years of Cromwell's rule. Eventually, Cromwell himself forbade any general assembly in Scotland from meeting, believing that they simply tended to foment uh, political tumult and uproar rather than being, uh, in his opinion, uh, uh, contributing to the, uh, to the uh, good of the church. They tended to solidify opposition to himself, these general assemblies. And you can see why, because Cromwell was a covenant breaker. And what are you going to discuss when you come together as a general assembly? If you're a faithful general assembly and you're bound by the Solemn League and Covenant, you're going to discuss the issue of Cromwell's covenant breaking. Well, that didn't set well with Cromwell, and uh, so he just banned all of the general assemblies from a certain point to the end of his, his rule. 
from principles of toleration of error. It's interesting how this uh, works out in history, but he began with tolerating error. Right? That's what we've just said. He moved to principles of intoleration to the truth and suppressing the true Reformed religion in Scotland. So he banned general assemblies. And those who were very vocal about their covenant keeping and and would not be silent, there were even censures brought civil censures brought against them as well. And they were simply again adhering to the lawful covenants that had been established in England, Ireland, and Scotland, which Cromwell himself had personally taken as being a member of the Parliament in England. He had himself taken the Solemn League and Covenant. But he actually, when he came into power, he actually instituted a national policy of opposition to it by by tolerating what the Solemn League and Covenant forbade and opposed, whether it be false views of doctrine, worship, government. For example, he tolerated Quakerism, prelacy, and even as I'll show you in this brief uh, quote, uh, Catholicism. This is a letter from uh, Cromwell to to his eminency, Cardinal Mazarin, uh, dated December 26, 1656. Um, I'll not read the, the entire letter, Uh, But he does say uh, he's responding to the call uh, that this cardinal has issued concerning toleration of Roman Catholicism within England. He says, but although I have this set home upon my spirit, I may not, shall I tell you, I cannot, and then a question mark after cannot, at this juncture of time, and as the face of my affairs now stands, answer answer to your call for toleration to the Catholics here. At this particular juncture of time, he says, I cannot do that. But he goes on to say that uh, uh, I will conclude with giving you assurance that I will never be backward in demonstrating as becomes your brother and confederate that I am your servant, Oliver and uh, Oliver Cromwell. So, uh, the uh, it seemed as though he would have uh, liked to have uh, instituted even more toleration toward Roman Catholics than, than he thought he could at that point, uh, but uh, didn't believe that he could, but uh, certainly gave the, the, the Roman uh, bishop there... Um, uh, assurances that uh, he would uh, be working toward that end. Now, the uh, uh, fifth main point under events leading up to key events leading up to the Arkansas, Arkansas renovation. <clears throat> Upon the restoration of Charles II uh, to the throne, and this is after the death of uh, Cromwell. Upon the restoration of Charles II to the throne in 1660, foreboding clouds of persecution gathered on the Covenanter horizon. During the bloody reign of Charles II from 1660 to 1685, the covenants and the works of faithful Covenanters were publicly burned All of the lawful acts of the Parliament of Scotland which promoted and defended the Second Reformation were annulled, made null and void. Faithful covenanted ministers were driven from their pulpits, were driven from their pulpits to roam in the wilderness without uh, having employment, without being able to provide for their families. Uh, Covenanters 
were indiscriminately slaughtered by the dragoons of, of uh, Charles II, and many were publicly executed. And so we see during the reign of Cromwell a, a toleration principle which annuls the covenants. Under the reign of Charles II, not a toleration, but an intoleration principle towards covenanting, a much more uh, explicit type of persecution against the covenanters. So you can undermine the covenant going, you know, just allowing uh, all kinds of toleration, or you can go against the covenant by your intoleration toward the very things that are stated within the covenant. The sixth uh, main point under key events uh, upon the death of Charles II in 1685, his papist brother, James II, ascended to the throne. The first year of James II brought what came to be known as the killing time to faithful covenanters, or as they were then being called Cameronians after John uh, Cameron. Um, and uh, so we, we know that uh, uh, during this first year of James II, uh, there was a very, very serious time of uh, persecution. Uh, in fact, attendance at conventicles or covenant meetings, covenanter meetings, uh, attendance at these meetings was made a capital crime, a capital crime. One could be put to death for simply attending uh, one of the meetings of the covenanters. Subsequently, he promoted, this is James II, he promoted more toleration types of policies, indulgences, uh, to uh, further compromise the Reformation, the Second Reformation, and he veered away from less persecuting policies because it was becoming more and more unpopular. And also, uh, he did so in order to broaden, because as I said, he was a papist, and his goal in introducing toleration at this point was to reintroduce Roman Catholicism into England, Ireland, and Scotland as the official religion of, the, of uh, Great Britain, of those uh, nations. And so that was his goal, and so he began to introduce these toleration principles and uh, uh, with that in view. <clears throat> the next main point, um, and we're drawing to a close here, leading up to the Arkansas renovation, James the, uh, II fled England in 1688 when Parliament became literally fed up with his papist goals and Parliament invited the Protestant daughter of James II, Mary, and her husband, William, the Stadtholder uh, or Chief Magistrate of the United Provinces of the Netherlands to sit upon the throne of England in 1688. This has come to be known in history as the Glorious Revolution. However, there is nothing glorious about this revolution uh, to the cause of a covenanted reformation as propounded in the Solemn League and Covenant. What the glorious revolution did do, uh, it did end the severe persecution that the covenanters were enduring. But as far as the broad toleration that was permitted, as we will see in just a moment, uh, it was not glorious at all. It undermined all that the Solemn League and Covenant had uh, advocated. Parliament under William and Mary restored all Presbyterian ministers in Scotland ejected from their pulpits six, since 1661, that is, those who would uh, uh, take the necessary oaths uh, uh, they, they were uh, reinstated uh, to, their, uh, to their pulpits. Uh, Parliament under William and Mary ratified the Westminster Confession of Faith 
and Parliament under William and Mary declared Presbyterianism the official form of, church, of, of the church in Scotland. And so somebody asked, so what is so bad about the Glorious Revolution then? It did all of those things. And uh, this is the point that we will end on tonight. Let me give you six reasons why it was not glorious. What's so bad about the Glorious re- Revolution? What's so unglorious about the glorious revolution. Number one, covenant-breaking ministers and prelates were permitted to unite with this newly established revolution church without repentance or censure. Even some of these prelates and uh, these former ministers had supported the very persecution and death of Presbyterian covenanters. And they were admitted into this church with blood, literally blood, upon their hands. A glorious revolution. Secondly, the Revolution Church changed the lawful constitution of the Covenanted Church of Scotland between the years of 1638 and 1649. That's the Second Reformation. It changed the constitution of the church. The Revolution Church adopted only the confession of faith. It did not adopt the National Covenant, did not adopt the Solemn Legan Covenant, it did not adopt the Larger Catechism, it did not adopt the Shorter Catechism, it did not adopt the form of Presbyterial Church Government, It did not adopt the directory for the public worship of God. It did not adopt the Acts of General Assembly between the years 1638 and 1649. It basically denied the Revolution Church, by so doing, denied the Covenanted Reformation, the Second Reformation. It denied that by not adopting those documents that were emitted and considered to be the lawful constitution of that church. Thirdly, what's so bad about this glorious revolution? The Revolution Church recognized Erastian principles of rule in the church by permitting King William and Parliament to have control over certain church policies. And so the king and parliament exercised control over policy within the church. They told the church, for example, when it could meet and when it could not meet for general assemblies. It told the church when it must be dissolved and other related matters. So there was an Erastian uh, control which the Revolution Church permitted. Fourthly, the Revolution Church accepted the act of security by which all kings and queens of England are required to preserve and maintain the prelacy of the Church of England, which the Solemn League and Covenant binds England, Scotland, and Ireland to extirpate or root out. And so the Revolution Church accepted the, the, an act which the Solemn League and Covenant had previously bound them to extirpate the very things that were received in this act, namely prelacy. They were to, to root out prelacy out of those nations and this act bound the Revolution Church uh, to, uh, to accept that kings and queens of England are to preserve and maintain it, prelacy. Fifthly, the Revolution Church did not testify against the Acts Recissory of Charles II. And in these Acts Recissory of Charles II, all the good and faithful laws instituting and maintaining the covenanted Second Reformation were made null and void. All of the acts of Parliament between 1638 and 1649 which instituted 
faithful and good laws which promoted Second Reformation, the Revolution Church did not testify against. They did not say that was wrong. They had an obligation to say what Charles did in rescinding all of those acts was, was uh, unconscionable. It was uh, uh, tyranny at the height to, uh, to abrogate those faithful uh, laws of Parliament. But this church, again, by not testifying against the Acts Recissory, undermined the Second Reformation. And then finally, <clears throat> for these reasons and many more, the Revolution Church and its ecclesiastical descendants ought to be viewed as covenant-breaking churches having no lawful ecclesiastical authority to rule in Christ's church. That church, the Revolution Church, because of its unfaithfulness, and I've cited a few reasons, there are many others, if uh, you want a much more full catalog of, of uh, sins, uh, heinous sins and errors, uh, please read Plain Reasons for Presbyterians Dissenting by Andrew Clarkson. But I've given you a summary of those errors and sins uh, that uh, were uh, allowed, permitted, tolerated, and pushed in this revolution church. Therefore, again, let me say that not only the Revolution Church, but all of its descendants who adhere to the same principles, though they may be a different church than the Revolution Church, if they adhere to those same principles, they as well are not lawfully constituted churches. They do not have lawful authority to rule in, in Christ's kingdom. The officers within those churches do not have lawfully constituted power to rule within Christ's church because they have violated their original constitution, which was a faithful and godly constitution. In fact, they have undermined a biblical constitution that was promoted in the Second Reformation. Christ says, you can't be for me or you can't have two masters. You'll either be for me or against me. And so, in order to be faithful to the covenants and to that constitution that was established in the Second Reformation, a church must adhere to those documents as being subordinate standards. Again, if they consider themselves to be Presbyterians who, who find their roots in, in the Westminster Standards, they must adhere to that covenant of Reformation and to the uh, documents emitted by the Westminster Assembly. Do you have any questions? Uh, this evening on uh, this this lecture and uh, next time we'll look at the events surrounding the Arkansas renovation the contents of the Arkansas renovation and uh, and uh, perhaps a few objections uh, to uh, that being a, uh, a document within our terms of communion but any questions that uh, from the uh, lecture this evening that uh, have come up in your mind. Mike? If we recognize the renewal of 1743 at Ontario as being a legitimate renewal, why wouldn't it be part of our terms of communion? Well, I think that uh, the uh, uh, there were many faithful renewals uh, that, uh, that, that I cited. Um, the, uh, uh, the Reformed Presbytery I think who have adopted these uh, six um, or these six terms of communion that uh, that now form our terms of communion, 
they looked at, I think, uh, all of these. Uh, if you look at the um, at the uh, covenant renewal at Octoera, that uh, it's a very, very brief uh, um, document in comparison to the uh, to the uh, renovation at Arkansas. Uh, and so I think it's much more replete, much more full. Um, uh, but uh, as I have read it uh, through and reread it, uh, it uh, uh, seems to own all of the same truths. Everything I don't, I have not found anything that would be uh, by way of uh, disagreement with anything at Arkansas or any of the previous uh, covenants. And so, I don't think that there's anything that I've noted or been able to see that uh, would make, uh, in substance or content, that that covenant renewal. Uh, in Octa-era to be a um, uh, unfaithful one, but I think that that's uh, the main reason is because I think the uh, uh, how replete, how full, uh, how well done the other one is. But it's interesting, I think, just to, to note there that that uh, uh, that was renewed in the United States. Those uh, certainly, there were Presbyterians, in other words, who believed that the United States in 1743. Now, this is before uh, their um, uh, war for their independence, uh, which is uh, uh, the Declaration of Independence was uh, written in 1776. Uh, it was prior to that, but in 1743, they recognized themselves as English. Uh, citizens and as uh, uh, being bound by uh, the laws of England and uh, for that reason uh, uh, the uh, uh, Reverend, I believe, uh, Craig, Craighead, I believe, was the, the name of the gentleman who was responsible for uh, this renewal. He, uh, uh, he pressed home the fact that, uh, uh, that uh, England uh, was unfaithful to the terms of the covenant which had been sworn in the, uh, uh, in the Solemn League and Covenant. So I think that this, uh, all I'm saying is that that further establishes, I think, that there is some historical continuity to, to demonstrate that uh, there have been faithful Presbyterians who recognize the binding nature of the Solemn League and Covenant upon uh, what is now the United States. Subsequent to that, of course, you have uh, again the Reformed Presbytery, which uh, renewed uh, covenant. Um, subsequent, uh, I think, in 18, um, 1880, uh, somewhere like that, uh, renewed the uh, the covenants as well. So uh, there you have um, uh, another covenant renewal, uh, and this is uh, obviously after the United States has become a nation, uh, a separate independent nation, and yet again faithful Presbyterians both before and after saying the United States is bound by the Solemn League and Covenant. Not only were the, what are, um, you know, not only the early Reformed Presbyterians, but also the, uh, within the United States, but also what were uh, the descendants of the seceders uh, recognized that as well, uh, that they were bound by the Solemn League and Covenant. And so there were, there were uh, uh, at least two groups of, of um, uh, Presbyterians who very clearly recognized the binding obligation uh, of that nation of the United States to follow these covenants. <clears throat> Any other questions? All right. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. 
Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.